HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. This week on Meet and 3, we look at the ways indoor and outdoor spaces are being reconceptualized during the pandemic to better suit new modes of living, working, and eating. Brought a vibrancy and an energy back to the city streets that was so dearly missed during the height of the pandemic. This is about how we can grow indoors all year round you know, using proprietary technology that we've developed. How do I have someone understand? Look, don't take a next to the June berries because you can eat those. That's free food. Tune in to Meet and Three HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Item 13, an African food podcast, and I'm your host, Yom Akuaku. Every week, we'll delve into the delicious world of African food, including chefs, curators, and bloggers. Here's the show. Today, I'm excited to welcome uh, Fozia to the show. Fozia is Ismail, right? Yeah, you say that's right. right. Yeah, um, I'm thrilled to have you join me today. I'm excited to talk everything one Somali food in general because I think even growing up for me back home, the perception of Somalia you wouldn't connect to like, or at least if you connected it to food, it wasn't in a positive way, right? So yeah, I'm really interested in talking about that and the work you do that's helping reshape that narrative. And yeah. then also just talk more broadly about, um, especially today, uh, about the politics of food in general and how some of those perceptions fit into that. And then you also do um, research work, right? You do a lot of stuff outside yeah. of food, trying to make those connections. Yeah. And so there's a lot to go into here. We'll try to do that in <laughs> four to five minutes. We'll see how that we'll see how that goes. Um, but let's start with um, you. Uh, as much as little as you want to share, let Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from. Okay, yeah. So um, I am. I grew up in London, northwest London, um, on Stonebridge Estate, and uh, my family came to England in 1985. Um, and I just, you know, I grew. My mum cooked 
Somali food, obviously, when we came yeah. here, like with a lot of African immigrants mm-hmm. or a lot of any any immigrant, um, you, you tend to cook food from home. Um, but I didn't actually learn to cook Somali food, I think, till really quite late on um, until I moved to Bristol six years ago. And I kind of, you know, I, I just really missed my mom's cooking, even though she's in London. It's, I didn't quite get access as regularly as I was used yeah. to. <laughs> I, I just had to learn to cook it. Um, and I, so I kind of started cooking it, um, but in cooking it in quite a mindful, I don't know, kind of a mindful way in a way. Um, I was really using it to cope with a lot of stresses about mm. uh, the kind of general rubbishness of (laughs) of (laughs) politics and racism um so yeah just so I really started yeah so I I, you know I did a supper club the supper club did well but I started kind of really delving into food and what it means to us as immigrant community you know as as one of the largest immigrant communities in the UK um in the context of what what is a hostile environment um, yeah and and i find it interesting too that um and i wonder if that's true i'm 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 guessing here now that i wonder if the combination of you you've sort of undersold yourself yeah so i begin <laughs> let people know just the combination of growing up where you did in um yeah. in northwest london um council yeah. in um uh, from what i understand and what they call council housing, uh, yeah, housing, yeah, in in London, and then eventually going to to Cambridge and studying yeah. social anthropology. Yeah, I wonder if that contrast. Then I don't know if sort of your awareness started then, like moving to Cambridge, or yeah, I think Cambridge was really interesting because I, you know. I never really thought of myself as poor. No one does. <laughs> no one I never does. thought of myself as like um, anything other than, you know, who I was. And then suddenly you are being defined as someone who's poor uh, by an institution or by people around you who you kind of suddenly realize, oh, my God, I met people who – goodness me, people are wealthy out there in the world, aren't they? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and it was a shock to me, just the kind of level of um, ignorance mm-hmm. and the level of privilege. I was, I didn't, enjoy, I, I met some wonderful people that I'm still friends with there. But to be honest, I never, ever, it, it didn't really shake my confidence in my intelligence or my ability mm-hmm. to, formulate my own ideas about how the world works um because I feel like one of the smartest people I know is my mum and she can't read or write so for me a lot of the for me I'm really interested in what are the ways in which we know and understand the world that are embodied and that don't necessarily prescribe to what I would call a very western centric um viewpoint of knowledge which 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 I find very uh I don't know kind of lacks imagination in the way that 
people kind of navigate the world around them you know if if, you know so there's a lot of I I, it was a good place I learned a lot but I also questioned the very I questioned a lot about the way knowledge very kind of the way knowledge was being produced in that space Mm. and kind of how actually it was quite a traumatic experience as a as a um, Somali person being there Oh, in lots of ways yeah just sorry from, to hear that. Yeah. yeah I mean just from yeah just not yeah but it I mean it was good I mean not traumatic in a massive way just like yeah. in a in a very much like how do you fit in intellectually in a space that only views intelligence in such a narrow-minded way <laughs> um, right yeah you know? so but yeah so it was it was really good though for my uh, critical thinking and my, you know, for, for pushing me in, in reading and critical thinking. As you were speaking, though, I it sort of brought me back to my own experience, which I didn't even realize then. I think I think in the UK, Cambridge, for example, just, oh, you know, Cambridge, Oxford, all of that signals a certain, uh, sends a certain signal, I guess. Um, yes. For me, when I first moved to the US, I don't think yeah. I understood then. So I went to... Um, I went to a private um, college or university and I don't even think I understood back then that that in itself was a privilege in some ways. And then to your point about understanding like the level of wealth that people came from and contrasting that with what they thought they knew about the world um, was uh, very eye-opening to me because, you know, I think I grew up sort of holding the U.S. especially, the U.S. education system, the U.S. knowledge system, like, in such high regard. And then you come yeah. in and you sit in classrooms and you're, like, yeah, you start to question it, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In some, in some and it's way. impossible not to hold those places in high regard right. because we've been taught to buy into a, a particular system. So for our parents and for... you know they buy into it as a way of almost making your life better as a way of opening doors um so I'm always really interested in what how how do we unpick that structurally how do we change society if 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 we all keep buying into um these ways of you know these signifiers that tell you whether someone is smart or not even though right. that's not reality <laughs> yeah. it's not it's a yeah. pretty it's a pretty uh, I met some very stupid people at Cambridge so <laughs> I don't I don't think it's any you know I think in terms of uh what it what it means to, I, I I don't understand like yeah. that way but it works for the world right yeah. it works for some yeah. people they buy into it for me my 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 experience from my you know my experience there made me kind of reject it really and so I went back to Stonebridge I did uh, I set up a youth couple of youth projects I did um I did community work in London for Mm. the best part of 20 years so I was very much committed to grassroots um activism almost like ways of work like just you know working on the ground working with young people um, doing interesting projects um, that were very much in in, in marginalised communities. Yeah. So that's always been an interest of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is probably why I ended up making the food so political. <laughs> <laughs> no, which, which it's, it's, it's so interesting to me because I was, as I was getting ready to speak to you and I was thinking about it and thinking about all the people I've spoken to on the podcast. And it, it honestly comes back, back to it though. Like everything is political and food, especially yeah. in, in today's context too. So a couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation. I'm going to tie it back for everyone that's listening and wondering, like, <laughs> what does all of this have to do with food? Um, I had I had a conversation with someone where he is very big on using food as a way of getting Africans to coming back to appreciating who we are, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And that we have something concrete um, yeah. to offer the world, whether or not they accept it or yeah. not, right? Which and, is beautiful, yeah. And, um we talked about, you know, how and why, for example, French cuisine has is sort of like held as the standard of good food. Yeah. When yeah. Really, I, I said back then, like, it's just butter. And anyway, <laughs> I'm digressing, yeah. you know, but it's like, how do we, so for, in, in that way, I wouldn't dismiss, you know, food being political as, as not a thing. I think it's important. And I think um, it's a vehicle to sort of address some of, the societal um i don't know what you'd call it not i guess misconceptions i guess yes about, yeah yeah um, absolutely. how we are structured and, and what yeah i mean so um, can i ask you how you got into food um how i got into food good question yeah. so for me it was more from a place of so i my background is in like corporate finance corporate banking and yeah. on one of my international assignments I worked in Europe for a little bit and yeah. I just found that a lot of like we would go out to client dinners or whatever and nine yeah. times out of ten well ten times out of ten really I should stop saying it. ten times out of ten I would be the only person of color yeah. and yeah. So then the conversation <laughs> the yeah. conversation would come around to um you know like food right what what kind of food yeah. we would eat and whatnot and I found it difficult to find places that I could point people to to go try certain foods. Yes. And yeah. so then I started kind of maybe like you so I started cooking <laughs> using what ingredients I could find in Frankfurt at the time um okay. to make like basic you know like you can find peanut butter for example so I would make yeah. peanut sauces and um that sort of thing and I would share on 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 Instagram just so people would get a sense yeah. of at least my friends then and then it sort of evolved into so as I was the Instagram algorithm was much better than it is now like people could discover you quite easily back then and so yeah I sort of discovered a lot more people um, doing, I thought, more interesting and better work than I could do because that wasn't my focus at the time. And so yeah. I started then to highlight their work because I thought people yeah. could learn more from people who are immersed in the space. They do this on a daily basis yeah. and whatnot. And then it sort of built. <laughs> then the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> yeah, I just built on it to do different things between activating events, um, you know, doing business workshops for entrepreneur, food entrepreneurs and whatnot. Yeah. And, and then I, I got into this podcast thing just because um, I don't know, I, I don't remember when I got into podcasts in general, maybe three years ago. And then 
how I built this in particular was really appealing to me in the way that interviewer was able to get draw stories out of people in terms of how they built their businesses. Yeah. And I thought I could do the same thing in terms because I, I would base just based on the work I was doing, I was just in contact with so many people doing interesting things in food, I thought. And yeah. wanted to create a platform that, you know, people could use to share their stories. And then they could take that piece of work and do with it whatever they wanted to do it in terms of selling their work or whatever. So, yeah, that's sort of how that's the shorthand, <laughs> like two yeah. minute, three minute version of how I ended up here. Um, so I'm always interested in people, especially, I shouldn't say especially, like 100% of the time, my focus is on African food. How yes. are we telling that yeah. story? Um, how are we educating each other? Because for me, the, the, one of the things I found in doing this work is that a lot of us don't know what, what else is going on on the continent in terms of yes. food. Like we tend to be super hyper lo- local focused. And yeah. so this education is not just, and for me, it's also an education. Like I've, even though I've lived, you know, moved, lived around the world, yeah. I haven't as much on the continent. And so for me, it's also a journey in discovery in terms of what's, what makes us, you know, similar, what makes us different. Um, and then, yeah, I think it's, it's gotten a good response in terms of uh, the learning aspect of it. Right. So. Yeah, um, it's fantastic. When you talk about the gaps, that's one of the things that, um, you know, I wanted to, like, I wrote a paper about, like, just there's this just this massive gap in African food history and knowledge, mm-hmm. like, as in the wider continent. And, you know, I, I was really interested in finding out why Somali people ate what they ate and how it's, you know... Uh, but there, there, there aren't that many. When you compare it to French, like just even say one country, like in yeah, France, right. France <laughs> dominates, right? <laughs> High end cuisine or whatever. Yeah. But you know, you just compare the number of just in one cu- European country, let alone, you know, for the whole continent of right. Africa, <laughs> you yeah. couldn't even find the the amount of cookbooks. I mean, it's. It's starting to change. I mean, in the UK, you have um, Zoe Garner Kitchen. Right, yeah. Wrote, you know, Zoe John, yeah, wrote um, uh, Zoe Garner Kitchen a few years back, and she's on her second book. And she talks about, you know, I've, I've worked with her before, and we, you know, just that it's a very, very difficult industry. Um, I, I, I agree and it, yeah you know? in terms of publishing and just getting and not just cookbooks too just getting like stuff like the history of it out there right the context oh, absolutely. of it out there right um, yeah absolutely and, um, and and normally it will be white writers that get to write on these topics so you know the one book that I had which is called the history of African cuisine um, it's an academic called James C. McCann I, I, it's a really excellent book I love it um and uh, um and even but he acknowledges <laughs> this is just yeah. you know it's a tiny book I had you know this is ridiculous but look I'm gonna try right. and I you know I really appreciate that he acknowledges that like there isn't enough you know enough um kind of work out there the work is happening but it's just that it's not being funded adequately either by universities or mm -hmm. by 
you know it's just not seen as for some reason it's 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 everything i mean it, and it all comes back down to institutional racism the assumption that you know there is no market or the assumption that there is you know why would people be interested in the kind of more joyful aspects of african cuisine and not focus on you know because everything obviously if you're on the continent it has to be bad it has to focus yeah. on <laughs> I to find, focus on how we have nothing yeah is, you know so it's like yeah, so a lot of the speaking so I've been lucky enough to um just in the last I would say 18 months or so just have a lot more speaking opportunities yeah. and I would say mixed mixed spaces and um mm. a lot of times like what I'm trying to do now is to focus on uh, telling people that counter story right and so to say yeah. that you know when people say and, and that's another reason why I don't like it with the the Africa reference because yeah. that alone connotates a certain picture like people say oh but then you know people say Europe so why can't you say Africa and it's like well when they say Europe there's a different mm. connotation to that too right yeah. and so I want people to say to think of Ghana and to think of you know the vibrant culture and the food and we'll yeah. think of Nigerians and they're, they're, yeah. the Nigerians are just big and loud and in good and not just bad ways in good ways to yeah. um think of South Africa think of all that art and culture and their music especially yeah. Um, yeah. so I think there's nuances that I want to be yeah um sort of recognize when people say specific countries versus the continent yeah, yeah, itself absolutely. um Definitely. that's something that uh needs to anyway so <laughs> we we go and we we actually maybe the, let's talk about your research first, first and then come back to food so it sounds like you've been doing a lot of work um yeah i think i to be honest i just started um writing about the gap in African food knowledge, not that there isn't, that there is obviously African food, sub-Saharan African food knowledge out there, but the gap in texts or written records around mm -hmm. it, um, and how hard, um, almost like how hard it is to find information out, because, you know, universities are quite, you know, I'm a, I, I would call myself a lay scholar, <laughs> or a scholar I'm I'm not really in that university space maybe yeah. if I'm funded that would be really nice anyone who wants to fund me to do a PhD I'll have to take it <laughs> um but so but what's interesting is I've carved out a space for thinking about food and the the what does it tell us when there is such a massive gap in people's awareness about sub-saharan yeah. and what does it tell us about people's lack of trust in sub-saharan african food and what i mean by that is when i interviewed people for my first paper in the uk in the uk uh i interviewed um so there was a, a Ghanaian street food vendor um chalet eats and then there was oh, um nims din diner din, yeah who did uh, who does the yeah, and she's great. And I interviewed them both. And um, I, I remember they were telling me these stories. And, I mean, it was shocking, but but also <laughs> believable. Do you know? Like, you could believe that would happen because um, people are ignorant. Yeah. So, you know, 
Ballet's, you know, putting, you know, this is like a lamb uh, dish or whatever, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And someone asks her if it's bush meat, you know, and then asks how she, you know, there's, there was a, she's, there was always a lack of trust. Like, is it dirty? Is it? Yeah. Like, and and I just, I was kind of astonished that people can be so outright racist. Um, yeah, and it's, in, it's interesting. To, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, but I, I was just going to say it's not surprising, though, because given what, I mean, what, what is the media? What, what do you see in the media? <laughs> yeah. About Africa? I mean, it's almost like, they, unless you are from the continent yourself, you, I genuinely believe people... I don't know. I think they think we're savage. I don't know. You know, I don't know. There's a, yeah. there's a real, there is a real anti-blackness that really pervades it all, the narrative. And that's what I would say. And it is specifically anti-black racism. It's not, um, it's not African racism since North, you know, you, if you think about North African cuisine, that's very popular. You've got Tunisian restaurants, you have Moroccan yeah. restaurants. You go on about how much they love those <laughs> so there's clearly something it's not all of africa is it it's it's, it's not it's not and it was actually that was actually one of the questions i was going to ask you in terms of well do, based on where somalia is i guess and i'm i'm maybe doing a horrible job of this geographically speaking but i wonder if there's a certain similar to more northern so i don't think somalia is as north but as you think about yeah identity because i have a i have a, a few like north african from algeria or, Ethiopia, yeah. or egypt or um yeah. tunisia and there's a there's a i don't want to say conflict of identity but there's this am i black african or am i arab um yeah. and then depending on who, what the social context is some lean lean harder into one identity versus the other in terms of yeah absolutely and the thing is where there's there's a huge amount of internalized anti-blackness within the somali community um even though you have very dark-skinned somalis you have bantu somalis you have like you know you there is so it's not about it's not about shade so much is it like color like so there is colorism in the community massively um but i would say that colorism is something that affects the whole of africa um oh for sure yeah but but with somali identity i think the thing that takes precedence is the islamic identity so if you look at muslim so you've got this um I mean, we were very, very early adopters of Islam. And that whole region, when you look at East Africa, is very, like Ethiopia, Coptic, you know, the oldest Christianity, you know, they've Mm. got a very old, ancient um, Christian base there, you know. um, But there are Muslim, there's a very ancient, I think the oldest mosque in Africa is in Ethiopia. Well, I guess I would, that's surprising to me, actually, given their Christian... Yeah, yeah, no, because all Ethiopia is kind of a real center of of religious, mm. um, I guess, establishing religious communities there maybe back in the, but so Ethiopia is one of the oldest um, mosques, but we have to also remember that Ethiopia, you know, these borders are very arbitrary. Right. Yeah. So when my <laughs> mum 
was born, she was born on the Ethiopian border. Harhara, uh, Harhara uh, which is the Ethiopian city, the wall, the great walled city mm. in Ethiopia, 50% Muslim. You know, so it's got an ancient yeah. community there. Um, so you've got this kind of, uh, the almost like what I would say, Somalis have bought into the Arab, Arab, you know, it's almost like buying into Arab culture to buy into their Islamic the culture. Islamic, yeah, I guess there's that connection, I suppose. You yeah. know, so, but there is, it's very fraught. It's a very fraught thing. There's, mm. there's, inter- there's a lot of internalized um, anti-blackness yeah. within our community um which which is frightening um and i think it is to do with how do you get away from you know this idea that you you know you're not going to be enslaved you're not going to be treated badly even though you are even though you you know you're oppressed in your own way but you're not gonna it's almost like there's a thing about pride somali pride you know um, we fought off the English. We fought, you know. There's a lot of um, mm. pride in the language. We're big oral history. Yeah, the big poets. There's a big, big focus on language and the maintenance of language. So when we were colonized by the English, we never really took to the language in the same way. Um, that you know, the, the the Somali is still spoken. Um, whereas in parts of Kenya, you know, the English decimated tribal language, you know, so it's yeah. very, it's really hard. Um, I don't like nation nationalism, <laughs> any form <laughs> of nationalism, including Somali nationalism. Um, so, you know, I come from the north. Um, we were colonized by the British. Southern Somalia was colonized by the Italians, and um, Djibouti oh, was colonized interesting. by the I French. Didn't know that. Yeah, so there were three colonial powers, four if you include Ethiopia. So parts of Ethiopia <laughs> are, yeah. are Somali, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but what, what's really interesting about that, and we're very close with Yemen, it means that the food is very rich and diverse mm. and mixed, you know? Um, so it's delicious but it's, it's <laughs> what identity is it i have yeah. no idea it's very it's very very yeah. um it's very yeah. very mixed because of where where right. we are located yeah that's an interesting Australia. point actually even when you consider because when i think about west african food which is what i'm most familiar with like mm. when you think about the differences as you move along the coast from like east to west in terms yeah. of the common um, ingredients and the ways of cooking, like just yeah. again, I, like I've said during this podcast in particular has helped educate me quite a bit on yeah. the differences and the nuances, but then also surprisingly, the similarities are things that yeah. I thought were, were um, strictly Ghanaian, for example, yeah. that I found that people in Benin, Benin have always had people in yeah. Senegal, for example. Yeah. Um. So it's just been really that's a good question in terms of like can you really say this is Senegalese or you know this is Reunion or is it just I don't know it's very hard I find it really difficult because I can 
there should be a pride in your national. Right. While hating borders and the concept of nationalism, there's something wonderfully comforting in having a home dish that you associate it actually right. much more with home. And by home, I mean not your. It's a home that is your mum's kitchen that right. happens to be Ghanaian yeah. or yeah. happens to be. <laughs> you know Somali and even within that home like a guy you know like within some you know when my mum when I talk to her about it she says well I don't know how other people do it this is how I do it right so there's no there's even even within one bit you're not gonna have there'll, there'll be similarities in certain dishes and certain ways of cooking um you know there are some distinctive things um but otherwise I feel it gets into, I think it becomes a much more important question, particularly for people of who have migrated, you know, yeah, because it, 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 it becomes a bigger issue about yeah. their identity. Mm-hmm. It's not, so the, the it's, yeah. It, and then also a bigger issue about how there's a huge issue with the way whiteness appropriates all of these cultures oh, that's a whole, Within, that's you know a so whole. there's it's, yeah <laughs> that conversation yeah exactly so then there's this whole other world which you're then kind of really it becomes so it so it becomes fraught it becomes fraught when it shouldn't mm-hmm. be it should be generative yeah it should be generous it should be i'm sharing this or i'm sharing this yeah. way of eating with you but the issue is always okay if you're going to start a food business um why do the food businesses that are owned by <laughs> you know if they're if they're headed up by it's just it's, oh there's so many debates around yeah. why why aren't sub-saharan african food businesses in the uk doing as as well, well as yeah. they should when you look at um african communities in the uk or have been here for a long time and yet you don't see their restaurants um they, they're just not they're not as visible yeah. within the marketplace yeah. um, as, say, in, uh, you know, a Gujarati restaurant or a Pakistani yep. restaurant, you know. so And a lot of them, which I'm actually going to then come back to your to your supper club. So a lot of what I found tends to happen, um, I guess, in, in, the U, in the UK, it's a supper club culture. In the US, I think yeah. you'd find more pop-up, they would call it pop-up dining experiences. Yeah. Um, so then how, like, in terms of you, your own experience, in terms of starting to cook at home to sort of satisfy your own, um, or what's the right way to frame this, to to create that connection back home, uh, back back yeah. to, to home and um, to your mom maybe in some ways, to, yeah. to the decision to say, okay, now I'm going to take it out into the world and I'm going to do it in this format why did you choose to go down that route and like what was your just especially in the context of everything we've talked about like what was your I, I mission think, in terms to of be doing honest, that I don't I I just wanted to have I thought it would be fun mm-hmm. um I was I had moved from London I had a young it fit in with my oh god when it's 2016 so my youngest would have been two years old okay so it was something that I can do while still trying to you know eke out some kind of income yeah not much <laughs> definitely not oh, me yeah I can imagine. As, you know it's not an income you know 
but yeah. yeah I think it was just for me it was a way of like doing something because I couldn't go back to my old job which had been in London right. and we'd moved to this city and I really wanted to do something I didn't want to be a stay-at-home mom like I just you know I just (laughs) that wasn't the way my brain worked Mm. as much as as much as it as nice as that is and as as a privilege as that is to be able to stay at home for a year or two I I wanted to get back out there but I also didn't want to go back to the work that I used to do Mm. um I wanted to kind of find out well what is it what what do I enjoy I love food yeah I'm greedy I've always been (laughs) greedy um but I wanted to make a comfortable so I I wanted to explore Somali food but in a comfortable way um so a lot of Somali cafes can be quite intimidating to walk into Mm. there's the whole gender divide sometimes like not so much in London but in Bristol I some of the restaurants are much more divided like that um and that used to piss me off just from as a feminist I would get really annoyed that you know you you're treated you it's almost like you're you walk in and you're treated like you shouldn't be there you know as a woman oh interesting so like this is somali owned places yeah like the the, they're very much somali cafes are for men that's how culturally it's seen so it's a male space you can go in and get takeaway but you can't, you know, they're not really designed as restaurant spaces oh, as well. Interesting. Um, you do have Somali restaurants in London. Um, so, yeah, and I and I think because I am, I would say, a non-traditional Somali person, <laughs> um, you know, it, it meant that, yeah, I think you. I just hated the fact that I felt like I couldn't be comfortable. Right. And you then know, into- so, Sorry, go I was ahead. gonna yeah, I was gonna say then in terms of who who was coming to your supper club then, um especially given, you know, the the um the setup of Somali cafes, like who was yeah. who then is coming to your supper club? Is that others like some more Somali women? Um you know. No, Brits. I don't think it was actually it was really just what I would say uh white middle class foodies that were interested in that cuisine. <laughs> okay um so it was it was really interesting we have had some people from um I've had like maybe four or five black people mm-hmm. attending total I'd say oh, wow in total so it's not yeah except when I did the Somali I've done some pop-ups yeah yeah it's really I think the price point probably puts a lot of people okay. off like if I was in yeah. London it'll be different yeah. This is the other thing I think a lot of African businesses struggle with, right? So I, I think it's very good value. It's thirty-five pounds. You get four courses. That's oh, a that's, yeah. That's that's very that's good, good value. Yeah. But I think a lot of us are used to thinking of African food as cheap, right. <laughs> and so I'm not going to price it any differently than I think it's worth. Right. You know? And in fact, yeah. it should be priced higher. Yeah. Um, if I was in the States, I, I would price it a lot higher, you know, because in America, you've got that much. I I, I, feel, I get the sense that, say, in New York, you would have black people out here supporting yeah. <laughs> a, a Somali, interesting, creative Somali pop-up. Yeah. Right? But then they also, they also tend to be 
price sensitive too and so yeah. that like we've had that so I've I've held events in like DC and uh New York and and London even where like that price sensitivity comes in and so you'll find and there's a difference between like first generation Africans for example or, yeah. or Africans African immigrants versus yeah. let's say the black American who's looking for yeah more more for connection to their roots so pricing is also like can be can be complex in that in that way in terms of who you want to attract versus you know making sure that you're also um like valuing the work that you're putting in to create an experience right so yeah absolutely um it can be interesting all right so i think this is a good place to take a break um yeah. we've, we've talked a lot we've oh my gosh <laughs> covered quite a bit here um we'll take a break and then when we come back I want to talk specifically about Somali food do a little bit of education on okay. what um I guess for better or for worse what, what we've carved out to be Somalia what um what foods um people from Somalia from that region generally um will have for for meals um okay and then we'll wrap up with our rapid fire questions so cool. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant. Or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. So we're back. Um, and now we're going to talk about food, more food. <laughs> And so we've talked before, you know, earlier on, we talked about the perception of Somalia as food poor. For example, like I grew up, you know, on TV saying Somali refugees. Um, yeah. We've talked about the cross-culturalness, is that a word? Cross-culturalness <laughs> of Somali food just by virtue of where you are in the interactions with different um, groups of people. So yeah. the Mediterranean, the Arab, etc. Um, and so now I want us to then uh, to start describing some of that food. So for people that this is totally brand new, and then for those that have a sense of maybe like what East African food is or what food in the Horn of Africa is, around the Horn of Africa is, specifically, because I started reading about this and I was like, oh, wow, like I don't, there's some like Pilau, for example, that I'm familiar with, like in East, in Kenya, for example. Yeah. But um, there are some that I was just like, this is all new to me. So I'm excited for you to to share. Um, maybe let's start with, um, what should we start with? Like main foods. So like what okay. would people have yeah. in terms of mains? Um, main foods, I'd say rice is a massive stable, mm -hmm. sta staple. Did I say that? Yeah, as, as it is across the uh, African <laughs> continent. Yeah. Um, so we have, but we have our rice. We've got like a really delicious, like berries um, with lamb or goat 
it's kind of cooked in the fat or like the the lovely stock oh, that that goes. Sounds good. And it's really delicious. And you've got fried onions on top and mm. um, raisins. And it's it's a really slow process. And that is delicious. Somali rice, if you haven't tried it, go to a ca- any cafe, any Somali cafe, and order some uh, berries. It's it's really delicious. Um, then I, then we've got things like maraca. It's just like any, it's kind of a curry, mm. similar thing, goat, um, lamb, chicken, but the flavors, I, one of the key distinct, I, I'd say one of the key things we have is this kind of spice blend called hawash and hawash just actually just means the essentials. And, oh, okay. you know, each family will make it differently, but a core bit is cumin, um, cumin, coriander seed, uh, cardamom, black pepper, uh, uh, clove, cinnamon. So it's a really fragrant, Ooh, yeah, spicy. <laughs> really, really nice. And that that's like a really good base for a lot of dishes. Um, another thing that I would say is we use tamarind. Okay. Um, so we've got tamarind. We've got a lovely shigni, a thing called shigni, which can be hot. It's sort of a tamarind-based hot sauce. Um, and there's also bispas, which is like green. We a lot of coriander. We use a lot of fresh coriander. Okay. So like this, this bispas is like green chili, coriander, lime. It's really delicious. It's like a really delicious yeah. hot sauce. So none of the food itself, like, so the, the rice or the curries or the, mm. won't be hot. They won't be spicy, like heat hot. Yeah. But there's sauces on the side. The hot sauces are hot, <laughs> 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 hot. And, and delicious. So it's really lovely. You, you get to basically adjust, you know, this kind of really lovely fragrant food Yeah. For, uh, for, for yourself. Um, cardamom and ginger is used in puddings or cardamom we've got there's another thing called halwa okay which is like a somali turkish delight is the only way that i can describe it you can have (laughs) it's really delicious it's got it's really fragrant it's got cardamom in it it can be saffron is another spice that's Mm. used in it uh sorry another um is, is saffron a spice i never know what to call it but yeah it's it's yeah it's just really really lovely uh turkish delight halwa and that's used like for celebrate you know it's very celebratory yeah so that you, sounds like really, a dessert right so like yeah a it's a dessert yeah. and you get it at weddings it's really hard to make um it's a vegan dessert though but oh, you still cool. get that jellied yeah feel, and it's that's through corn flour and oil so it's just the the technique of making i mean it's very difficult to make i can never quite get the texture right <laughs> But normally in any place where there's lots of smileys, you'll have like a halwa shop, which does, that's all they do is make and sell halwa. Oh, nice. the community, you know, for weddings or events or celebrations. Um, the other thing you'll find is sambusa, which is a samosa, basically. Okay. I yeah. like to think of Somali samosas as basically mm. being the tastiest in the world. I, I, know, I know that's very like controversial, but I'm just going to put it out there. Generally, I don't think you get a better samosa, and I've heard this from Indian people themselves. Oh, <laughs> interesting! What, what makes it? What makes it? What um, makes it? Is it the crust or the filling? 
the filling. Okay. It's the filling. Um, so my mum's lamb samosa is just delicious. Ooh, um, and then there's also you get vegan fillings. You could just it just the filling. It's the combination of the of the that with the bispas, with the hot oh, sauce yeah. is just yeah. really really delicious. Another big thing we have is pasta. Pasta is a massive no way part of our cuisine. Yeah, massive because of the Italians yeah, colonizing guess, the south. Right? Yeah. So pasta. So I grew up eating tiramisu for my some pudding. No, that a massive is influence, to me. even though we're from the north. Um, you'll find that a lot of Somalis will have like um, Italian puddings, or there's a big Italian influence in the cuisine in terms of like. So spaghetti bolognese, I grew up eating spaghetti bolognese, but but not with beef, (laughs) but with lamb mince and and cumin in the tomato. Sounds so, so good. It's really nice. So pasta is a big, big part of the cuisine. And always on the side, you've got uh, mousse, your banana. You've got like a banana. This isn't plantain. We do eat Wait, plantain yeah, as well. Yeah, I was gonna say. Did you mean plantain or like no, a true no, banana? No, like a true banana. And this is the thing that confuses so many people because they're just like, "Why are you having a b- banana and not plant?" It's like, yeah, we eat plantain too, but this is just like generally, you will always get a banana on the side of any of these meals. That whether is it's so the spaghetti, whether it's like the rice. <laughs> <laughs> so you know that is very 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 typical that's interesting and then like similar to um I wonder if you have because I'm thinking of Ethiopia now like if you have certain yeah. like eating traditions so like you know they have their coffee ceremony so like yeah we do I think we around. do I'm not we don't I'm trying to think of any particular eating traditions I'm rubbish with traditions. <laughs> oh, I know. I know something that is really traditional, actually, that you would get at a wedding. So you've got d- dates are a very holy part of the, mm-hmm. you know, dates and also this thing called mokomad, so dried camel meat. Oh, okay. It's, so it's, it's a very, it's a very, um, it's like a real delicacy, particularly for the Somali diaspora who live abroad. Because it's quite hard to get yeah, I people, imagine. you know. So and it's it's this contraband. And actually, I did my whole art project in Bristol based on this kind of strange phenomenon where we would get this camel meat, this this mogul mad, and and alongside these cassette tapes. So every time in the eighties and nineties, people come you'd get it alongside like tape letters from home. I actually was going to ask you about that because I saw that project too, the camel meat yeah. and tapes about yeah. sending tapes back and forth. That's interesting. Like, I think we have time. If you have a couple of minutes, if you want to share yeah, what yeah, that's sure. all about. I thought that was yeah. really interesting. Yeah. So last year I did a project at the Arnold Feeney, which is the contemporary art uh, center in Bristol. And it was on this thing about tape letters because I had a, and but also camel meat featured because I always associated these tape letters that would come mm. through with someone delivering these tape letters with the Mohammad, you know. So you'd get them at the same time, and it was like a very special occurrence. And obviously, everyone was refugee at the time, or you've had this whole situation where you've, you know, I don't talk about the war. I don't really like to it's almost like we've moved on from that I didn't experience it for a start so I don't talk about it my mum didn't you know 
for for my mum, it was just getting us somewhere that could we could grow up safe, you know. So, um, it's, I, so it's a really funny part of our, you know, for me, like mm. this Matt Camel meat being such a seen as a prized delicacy, particularly for a certain generation. But if you speak to younger Somali people. They just can't, I mean, they're like, it's so rubbish, <laughs> you know? And so I was always interested in, as to why I quite like it. It's like beef jerky. That's mm, all. I was going to say, it's probably like beef jerky or biltong. Yeah, that's it. It's like biltong or beef jerky. Just, but so for, for me, I, I quite like it, but it's clearly uh, for, for that generation that grew up there, it's a really important part of the culture. And I would say that is one thing um that you so you have these like wedding baskets that you get and in the middle of the the wedding basket you would have um and the wedding basket is wrapped around in rope mm. um and you have to and there's a whole ceremony um where the husband's fat the groom has to try and untie the rope <laughs> to get access <laughs> to this, you know very very uh yeah what it signifies is fairly obvious but like um <laughs> But it's in the middle of this basket, you have the dates and the camel meat, the mukhamad, and they are considered like, basically, these are the things that have sustained us, mm. Somali people, as no, because yeah. we're nomadic people. So they're very, very, um, I, I would say spiritually significant to our, to, to yeah. our people, even though it's very simple. This isn't like the bits of our food that's most delicious or the bits that, people will go on about but they're they're the bit that I think that really represent you know the resilience of Somali people you know um to survive so much you know to survive you know harsh uh climate to survive colonialism to survive um civil war there's something for me in the representation of the date and the Mughalmad, the camel meat, as just something so beautiful about how it sustained us as people. Yeah. And it's something that people hold on to these traditions. So even now, if you have a wedding, you will still have this going on, in, whether it's in London or Toronto or yeah. Australia. Well, that's pretty cool. That's neat. And I, this whole idea of it coming with tapes as well, so probably yeah. add to it. It's some nostalgia and like yeah. a connection to home. So that's yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. Okay. So what's next for you in terms of like what your work with either with the supper club or the yeah. work you're doing with your research? Um, yes. The supper club's taking a bit of a break at the minute um, because of all this crazy right. pandemic stuff. <laughs> Um, but I'm sort of looking at, uh, we're, we're in the process of trying to get phase two of camel meat and tapes going. Oh, cool. So I, that will be, we'll probably be doing some events in the new year, next year around mm-hmm. it. So making more, um, so hopefully making more sound projects around this, this kind of phenomenon of tape letters. Yeah. And also doing a bit more research, I guess, on, yeah, just Somali poetry and sound. So there's a big, there's a big thing with these tape letters about the poetry that they contained. So a bit more investigation of archives. 
In terms of food, there's a food and travel paper that I wrote for the Oxford Food Symposium that I think was published this year. I have to go back and check. <laughs> but I need to I need to get it out there in the world. I'm so rubbish at getting my research out. Yeah. But it's Is there food. a link to it so I can share with people when this comes Yeah, out? as soon as I um, upload it, I think that will be really good. Like so yeah. I've on this it's a really interesting paper on food and travel um and the privileges of food and because food and travel kind of go hand in hand yep. right yeah. so what does it mean in a world where you have these more ever more restrictive borders um what what does it mean for our for, for food yeah really um so i'm really excited about getting that out as well Ooh. That's all exciting, good stuff. Yeah, I would really love to to read that paper too. I mean, I will share with people about my yeah, own. Yeah, I'll definitely forward it. I'll definitely I'll forward it to you. Um, yeah. yeah, just for my own. Um, okay, so before we transition to the rapid fire, can you let people know where to find you online if they're looking to follow your work on social uh, media, etc. Yeah, so I'm quite active on Twitter, um, oh. and that oh. is at Aruelo Eat. So A-R-A-W-E-L-O, and then I think it's a underscore at Eats. <laughs> okay, Honestly, I will look it up and include it, it too, sorry, so people can... Yeah, Aruelo like, Eats. Um, that's that's, that's and, fine, and my website is my w, uh, w... To find out more about the kind of work I do, it's www.aruelloeats.com. So it's... Um, a r a w e l o e a t s. We never actually covered what does Aruelo mean in yeah. Aruelo was a kind of semi-mythic uh, Somali queen. Oh, um, okay. So she's a big figure in in Somali history. Um, okay. She's got a fantastic story where she was widowed and she set up a woman's army and then basically took over. Um, and she castrated lots of men, apparently. But <laughs> oh, my God. Read that story. But she, she's, she represents female empowerment. Really. Okay. Oh, cool. Neat. Very cool. All right. So now we'll do rapid fire really quickly. <laughs> Rapidly. Oh. Um, so first question is coffee or tea? Tea. Um, 100%. Yeah. Is it from... So don't somehow did you guys do coffee too, right? Don't you? Yeah, yeah, we do coffee. Yeah, yeah. I like coffee and we do a lovely spiced coffee, ginger and mm. cardamom coffee. Um I like coffee too, but I love tea. <laughs> and we do we do spiced tea. Like okay. yeah. Char, yeah. And it's delicious. Okay. Um actually this is interesting because of the work you're doing with camel meats. Uh who would you rather meet? Your ancestors or future descendants? Oh, ancestors. Hmm. I would imagine, yeah, <laughs> just based on what you're doing now. And then one ingredient you can't live without. Oh, my goodness. Oh, one ingredient. Can it be the spice blend? How are yeah, I, I, yeah, I felt like you were going to say that. I can't, <laughs> I can't live without that. <laughs> okay. And then if you could live on one dish for the rest of your life, what would that be? Oh, it would be berries. My mum's rice and lamb. Oh, with a Definitely. banana, of course. With a banana, yeah. <laughs> and then finally, you've won an award for your most notable achievement. What would it be called? 
Oh my god. What what the award or the achievement? Yeah, what would what would you be getting the award for? What would be your most notable achievement? Oh what my what god. I guess it's a I guess it's a legacy question. Well what it's a legacy question. Oh do you know what? I would love to get an award for trying to use food to flatten out power structures. <laughs> but I don't oh, know that's... what award that would be <laughs> or what it would look like. This is a lifetime <laughs> award for her. That's that's a good one. Saying, actually... saying no to any any snobbery in food, <laughs> saying no to any of this crap that doesn't matter. <laughs> Kindness, <laughs> generosity. I don't know. That's a really difficult one. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's a that's a good summary actually of everything we've talked about and the work that you're doing actually. So. That, yeah. that makes sense. Well, that's it. We went over our time by a little bit, but I think it was worth it. I think we covered a lot of good stuff. Um, oh, and I think it's... the audience will find this incredibly enlightening. I did. There's a lot that I learned um, today oh, for sure so that much. I will be yeah. thinking about for the next few days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. It was great to speak to you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Item 13 an African food podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. To keep up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Item13Podcast. Item 13 is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.